Welcome to the show. In this one, I talked to Tim Weiser. Like so many people, he came to Alaska to chase a dream. It was 1993, and he was a young snowboarder who wanted to ride the drastic and iconic mountains Alaska is known for. He had visions of bluebird days and big pow turns. So with a few hundred bucks and his snowboard gear, he moved to Girdwood. There, he got a dishwashing job at Chair 5. But it wasn't long until he met Rob Baker, who worked at Borderline, a snow and skate shop in Anchorage. That meeting between Tim and Rob led to a phone interview with one of the owners, my dad, Scott Liska. Tim went on to work at the Diamond Center Borderline. He found that he was good at keeping the shop tidy and also mentoring some of the kids who came into the shop. He grew up with a few mentors of his own, so he felt a responsibility to pay it forward. He realized that these kids didn't always need advice. What they needed was somebody to listen to them and to acknowledge their hardships. In 1994, Tim opened up the first Juno borderline. He took the ferry there, and the first thing he did was ditch his surfboard in the bushes. He says he didn't want to drive around Juno looking like a kook with a surfboard on his car. So the next thing he did, after he dropped his surfboard off in those bushes, is he called Scott to see what his next move should be. Scott tells him to get a hold of a 15-year-old kid named Chris Courier. Chris has been calling the shop in Anchorage and talking about how Juno needs a snow and skate shop there. Chris, by the way, would soon become one of the first Juno boys, a group of riders in Juno who were pushing the boundaries of snowboarding in the 90s and early 2000s. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber. Seward Brewing Company. The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau. Derek Adolph. Sharon Liska. Jake Liska. Alaska Surf Adventure. And Borderline Legacy. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Tim Weiser. After his time in Alaska, he went on to have a successful career in sales in the snowboard industry. He worked for Nitro Snowboards, Dekine, and Smith Optics. Throughout his time in sales, he worked as a rep, in customer service, as a marketing manager, 
a product manager, and then as a sales manager. Those jobs gave him the opportunity to snowboard, but more importantly, through them, he was introduced to people he now considers family. That same thing was true for Alaska. He says that most of his memories of the riding he did there have faded over the years. There's a couple standout days for sure, but it was everything around snowboarding and around the scene that really made an impression on him. So here he is, Tim Weiser. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So you sent me a few emails that kind of lays out your life, you know, your upbringing, college, coming to Alaska, being there to help my dad, my uncle Jay start borderline, and then eventually having a career within the snowboard industry. I was thinking we could start off with you being introduced to Alaska and then I'll bring in all the other stuff. How does that sound? So we start kind of when I come to Alaska and then we, if we need to backpedal, we backpedal. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. And, and, you know, it's my job to get us, you know, where we need to go. So you don't have to put too much thought into that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I wanted to lay it all out there, but by no means was I, you know, you are the podcast expert. I'm a big fan of podcasts. Oh, right on. I listen to them all the time. Um, but you know, you're the guy who knows how to do this and I'm happy just to run with where you're going. Right on. So Alaska, when did that come into the picture? Alaska for me, the image of Alaska came into my reality when I first came to college and I met these dudes we called the crazy Alaskans and they just talked about (laughs) this place up there and someday when Alieska allowed snowboards, how it was going to be so incredible. And, and, um, but when I actually came to Alaska, it was about halfway through school and I was trying to juggle my snowboarding and my schooling and it was always a a tough mix to do the two and uh, mm-hmm. I got into a little bit of trouble in school which probably isn't worth getting into but they basically told me that you know I should probably take some time off to to avoid some disciplinary action and and uh, I was dating a girl who was from Alaska and I had a couple buddies up there from my old snowboard scene so I I just thought what the heck I'm gonna go up and my only goal was at the time you know the early heli stuff was just starting mm-hmm. so you had these visions of bluebird days with big pow turns and these crazy looking mountains that were just, you know, it's kind of like if you're a surfer and you were going to go to the North shore to prove yourself, you know? So, yeah. so that was the, that was the dream. And, um, you know, I came up and, and, and I did it. I moved up to Girdwood and, uh, I left my beat up old car at home and I came up with a few hundred bucks, my snowboard gear. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. I came up in the fall of, uh, 93, 94. And real quick, you said that you got into some trouble in college. What kind of trouble did you get into, if you don't mind? No, not at all. Um, it was actually kind of funny because, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm no big troublemaker. But I was kind of in this pattern of, uh, like I said, school and, work, school and snowboard, snowboard and school. And so there was a mm-hmm. certain cutoff date where you could withdraw from a class if you were about to fail it and you wouldn't get a F, you get a W and I'd go. Typically I was getting this pattern where I would drop out of my winter classes and I would retake them in the summer school, which works pretty good for shredders, by the way. But I, um, 
yeah, so you know those things when you're trying to get something done and they send you to the next guy and they send you to the next guy. And yeah. I did that. I was just trying to get my money back for a class that I withdrew like one day too late or something. And I got all the way up to the dean level and I went to the dean's office and she more or less told me word for word what the first person told me. And I just kind of lost my cool a little bit. I told her off. And that would have been that if not for a weird little thing. But I went outside and I was pumped full of adrenaline. And I saw this trash can and I just kicked it hard, you know? <laughs> I didn't realize that it was the recycle bin that was full of glass. Yeah. And so the trash can went over and all this glass comes out, you know, making all this noise and breakage. And so it happened to be like right when class was getting out and it was right below the dean's office. So she comes storming out and she had really coolly handled me, you know, how many disgruntled dudes had she seen you know yeah. just that week so what was we became no big deal became her losing it swearing it at me call me a little motherfucker and all this stuff and then so i had it right back and we're shouting and by this time we're getting a little circle around us and i think the pinnacle moment was i just looked down and there was her flower bed and i was like i paid for these two and i stomped on the flowers Oh my and, gosh. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was just kind of random, but um, you know, the next week was like, oh, there's that dude that stomped on the Dean's flowers. It kind of became <laughs> something bigger than it should have been. And uh, yeah, so I went to the meetings, you know, and they had a little board there and they're like, yeah, you know, we're not going to do any disciplinary action. It was just a, you were just mad, but you know, you should probably take some time off so we don't even have to worry about it. We kind of figure things out. And it was funny when I went back to school years later, my dad, by the way, is a college professor. So he was mortified, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and uh I went back and apologized to her years later when I went back to school. And funny thing is she didn't even remember it. Huh. You know, here's this big thing that was pinnacle moment in my life of making decisions. And she didn't even, you know, just whatever. You know? So, yeah. uh, so that was that. And so I came up to Alaska and, you know, prior to that, I hadn't, um, I had worked in a shop for a little while, but my main thing was I was really into snowboarding. And so I didn't want to work during the daytime. I didn't want to work in a shop talking about riding. I wanted to go ride. So mm -hmm. So I'd gone from dishwashing to cooking. My brother was a cook. He taught me how to cook. And so that was kind of my gig. I, I cooked at night, snowboarded in the day, did my school stuff. I got to Girdwood and um, I went to go do that same thing. And uh, so I got a job at, at Chair 5, which you've probably been to. Yeah. Good halibut burger. Yeah. Um, but they didn't have any cook jobs. So they offered me a job washing dishes. And uh, so I did that for a little while. And, and it was just... Uh, you know, I was kind of going backwards and it wasn't awesome, but there's not a whole lot of jobs in Girdwood. At least there wasn't at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, then I, by chance, uh, met Rob Baker, one of the employees at Borderline. And um, he invited me to go wakeboarding with him and his boys. And so I went out to, I think, Wasilla or somewhere out there. And we went to a lake and we wakeboarded, had a good time. And, and that led to me, him saying, hey, you should come work with us at Borderline. And that led to my phone interview with your dad and, <laughs> and, and my job. Yeah. And the phone interview, please cut me off if I start rambling. Um, no, no, you're good. My phone interview with, jo with Scott was pretty funny and pretty indicative of, of what my <laughs> life was to become because, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm just kind of this overthink it kind of guy a lot of times. And so he's asking me about what, you know, I'm saying, yeah, you know, I used to work for right on this shop team and I did this and I'm studying that and doing this long winded nervous thing, you know, and he just cuts me off well, do you know how to sell shit? <laughs> and I was like, probably gave some kind of weird mumbly, I think so, or something, you know. And the truth was, I didn't know how to sell shit. I really didn't. Um, I didn't I didn't shop retail growing up. We shopped, you know, thrift store style. And, and uh, 
you know, I went to the mall a lot as a kid, but it was to play video games and cause trouble and break in at night and go skateboarding and things like that. Um, yeah. And so I, when I liked to shop, I didn't, I didn't want someone bugging me trying to sell me stuff. You know, yeah. I was always that guy like, nah, I got it. You know? Yeah. I, so I didn't really understand retail. I didn't understand sales. Um, but borderline was my training ground. You know, I worked a little bit at Arctic center, right. When they had the ramp in the back Yeah. and, uh, you know, that, that was one big, like little mess of big jeans and stuff, you know, back then. And, uh, <laughs> but I spent most of my time at diamond center. And so it was kind of ironic, you know, taking time off from college and, and, um, I'm, I'm in the mall, I'm hanging in the mall, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, for better and for worse. And for, uh, for that's what I did for a year, um, working at the mall in diamond center. And, uh, yeah, it was a trip. It was a lot of fun. I'm sure you have some stories from that time. Oh yeah. So many. And I mean, where to start? I'll just try to pick the highlights as it relates to, you know, what people might be interested in hearing about. But like, first off, when I moved up there, I mentioned I didn't have a car. And so being the low guy on the totem pole, um, you know, I was living in Gerbwood, working in Anchorage. Um, I think my three days off, Alieska was closed for two of them. So, but these are realities of a young guy when you're, you're not a kid anymore. You know, I had to suddenly pay rent and you know, the mm-hmm. food, the food at cars is pretty expensive. I found compared to home. And, and so, yeah, things were different. It wasn't just shredding all the time, but, um, so I didn't have a car. So I was either catching rides. Um, oftentimes my buddy Corbett would work in Anchorage too. So if he was working, I'd get a ride in with it in his rabbit and glad I survived those rides. Cause <laughs> he's quite the driver. Um, but a lot of days I would just hitchhike and, uh, that was really something Cody. Cause like it just, it let me uh, learn about another side of Alaska, like Alaskan people I would have never met. And so yeah. typically it was like getting the ride out to the highway in the morning was pretty easy. Getting the ride into Anchorage was usually pretty easy. There's always people cruising into Anchorage, right? Yeah. Nighttime is a little trickier because it's dark out and I pretty much have to get from Diamond Center out to the edge of town. It would usually be one ride. And then I'd be on the highway at night, sometimes with my gear, sometimes not. And then I get the ride to Girdwood, you know. And I never really had a scary experience. I never had a bad one. I think the one that sticks out in my mind was this dude that was just cool as could be. And a Ford Ranger picks me up. We're just chatting. He mentioned he hadn't come to, gone to town in a while, getting a few things. And then he said, I realized that by that, he meant he hadn't been to town in six years. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy was as normal as normal could be, you know, talking about his daughters. And that just like, whoa, you know, it just became this whole conversation about how this guy lived his life, you know, getting, getting yeah. drops from the bush planes and... And uh, that was kind of, to me, like an example of like, that's why people come up to Alaska. Because Mm, even in Colorado, where there's a lot of wilderness and a lot of, you know, a lot of people go out in the woods and whatnot, you typically don't go six years between running to town, you know? And so (laughs) it was things like that that were just, just really funny to me. And like working in Diamond Center itself, you know, it was, um, like I said, I was working in the mall. So all the mall culture, uh, and the Alaskan culture mixed in like one example, like, and my buddies still call it this to this day. I was, you know, we go down the, to the coffee place by the ice rink down there to, to get coffees in the morning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so kind of an Alaskan tough guy thing is you don't take cream in your coffee. Right. Do you drink your coffee black? <laughs> Me? Yeah. I actually drink espresso. Um, okay. but I, just put a little bit of like stevia in it, but mm-hmm. that's probably not very manly either. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, 
But anyway, so I, so, but it goes to my point though, is because everyone drank their coffee black but me. So the joke became they would go down to the thing and be like, all right, give me four, four Americanos, one with wuss juice for Tim. <laughs> <laughs> wuss juice. <laughs> and so to this day, you know, my best friends and I are always like, yeah, pass the wuss juice. And um, that's, that's what borderline, that's what Alaska is, is like these things that become lifetime jokes and lifetime yeah. things and it just goes into the kind of the shit talking culture that we were in yeah and, you know so i worked with gordy keto an old mountaineering guy i worked with your with who else i worked with i worked with of course your your uncle jay mm -hmm. and uh, i was kind of right about the time they, they split um i worked with your uncle kent him and i got to be good buddies yeah um and then i also worked with with jason borkstead yeah and so um it was a good mix of dudes and um you know i like i said i wasn't super qualified to to do retail i didn't understand about add-on sales i didn't understand that everyone that walks into the store for the most part you know other than the kids just killing time and hanging it's like people walk in because they're interested in something you know mm -hmm. and you have you have the knowledge of everything in the store and so there actually is a purpose for the sales guy which i didn't really understand <laughs> you know when i first yeah. started if that makes sense how would you describe your experience with, you know, snow and skate shop culture? Snow and skate shop culture, um, you know, it was key to my upbringing, my hometown shop. You know, I remember when I bought my first complete 55 bucks Santa Cruz jammer. Mm -hmm. You know, every skater remembers that first graphic of their first board. You know, you start with the complete and then you get the, as you go up, you choose your deck and put your deck together. And, you know, we go in and, do the stickers and the videos that be on the wall. I'm from an older generation, so you know my video heroes were the Bones Brigade, mm -hmm. Search for Animal Chin, yeah. the Powell Crew, and that that skate team going all the way back to like you know the Zephyr and Dogtown days was like the skate model was adopted by the snowboard the snowboarders and eventually the skiers about having this mm -hmm. tight knit crew that liked hanging out, but they were all rippers, all with their own individual flair, mm -hmm. and like. So yeah, that culture I really believed in. Um, and to get to work in it a little bit, you know, in the late 80s, 90s, it was just such a time of evolution for snowboarding that it was exciting, it was rebellious. Mm -hmm. um, in a word, it was like fun, you know, it was cool. And yeah. uh, the rebellion, like the music was hand in hand with what was going on too. Like yeah. we had this soundtrack back in the day. Like when we get to the King of the Hill, your dad brought up uh, Pennywise and Offspring up for the first King of the Hill comp. and. Who knows how he got those bands because they were like so hot at the time right <laughs> yeah but um i actually just interviewed uh rick devoe and he is the guy that brought up those guys oh sick brought up offspring pennywise blink before they were blink 182 so uh yeah that was that connection you know between my dad my uncle jay and rick oh that's so cool yeah that's, you know that's those guys they're always making those next level connections totally but yeah. you know for us in the shop you know, the music was a big part. It was a rebellious time back then. Um, I think especially up in Anchorage, you know, because, you know, you kind of have like your conservative guys, maybe some of your good old boys. And I imagine there was a lot of parents out there that were just kind of waiting for their kids to get through, hoping it was a phase, you know what mm. I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. they're they're dyeing their hair, they're wearing these big old jeans with, with shoelace belts and they're and they just got some attitude and it probably yeah. didn't help when they came into the shop like we rocked rage against the machine yeah every day you know so <laughs> you you come into the shop and there's some turned up 
um, boombox in the corner going, fuck you, don't do it. I'm not going to do what you tell me. Fuck you, you know, and going over and over. I won't do what you tell me. Dun, 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 dun. I mean, that's the soundtrack of your upbringing, right? Yeah. And um, so if you're a pretty conservative parent, that probably didn't stoke you out too much when you went in there. No. Um, you know, hip hop was big. I was big into it, still am. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it was counterculture. It was... You know, it was the, the you know, whoever it was, public enemy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that time was, um, it was just a fun time to be a snowboarder, whether you were in the shop or whether you were the kid coming into the shop. What I really related to was a lot of those kids, you know. Mm. Like for me, I was pretty good at what, what came to be known as merchandising. I just called it cleaning up the shop. Um, and I liked the kids that came in, you know, kids would ditch school and you were kind of the cool guy if you worked at the snowboard shop, I guess. And, yeah. and a lot of these guys would open up to me and talk to me about, about their life and about what's going on at home. And, you know, it's just like, it, it was a cool vibe down at, at, at the Borderline Center for sure. Do you think that you were good at talking to those kids about that? You know, about the stuff that they were going through in their life? Yeah, I was because I because I've been there and okay. I've been, you know, I came up in a home that had some problems and and, um, you know, those early scars, if you deal with abuse or, you know, addiction in your in your folks and things like that, it's, you know, it's stuff that stays with you. It's stuff that you spend a lot of your formative years trying to work out. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would watch these kids getting in that stuff. And a lot of times, you know, you just need to be listened to. Um, you you need people to acknowledge you. And, and not give advice as much as just kind of hang and have friends. Like when you're young, having friends is so important, you know? Yeah. When you sometimes get in the outside of a friend bubble or your friends all turn on you, I mean, is there anything worse than that when you're a kid? Yeah, probably not. So, no. Yeah, I was good at that. I was a lot better at that than the actual job of selling stuff that I was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in those emails you sent me, you said that you weren't a great kid, that you were a vandal, you were lazy. You were an underachiever. You grew up in a broken home. You were abused and you were insecure. Could you tell me about that? Well, I have to start first off because you know how it is. It's it's a little eye roll moment if you know if you got a white male like me who's never missed a meal talking about his tough childhood. That's always <laughs> one of those things, you know. That's like, yeah, yeah, buddy. So you know, I had an op- I had a childhood full of opportunity. You know, Fort Collins, Colorado was a good place to grow up, college town. But, you know, every family and every person has their individual struggles. And, you know, I had mine. And so, um, yeah, I wasn't a good kid. I was a brat, you know. And that's when snowboarding came in. Like skateboarding, I got into it. But, you know, it's a pretty darn hard sport. I I never quite got into it, into it, if you know what I mean. And uh, it was a social thing, something to do with my friends. And, you know, I always was kind of scared of the falls, to be honest with you. It was until later, you you and I learned how to take a fall a little better. But, you know, in the beginning, skating's hard. And then snowboarding was new, and uh, my brother had been out of the picture after my folks got split, and it's actually what brought us back together. He was always an innovator, just like your Uncle Jay, just like on the super forefront of things. Mm-hmm. So my brother started riding, I think, in 83, 84, before there was bindings, back when the boards were they had a big metal skeg in the back, you know, for, for making turns, and he got into it real early. I chased him around on skis for a little bit, and then I started... Um, I started snowboarding, I think 85, 84, 85, I think I started going. Split tail Sims. Sims was the cool brand back then, by the way. Burton hadn't come around yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was there, but it was just the boards weren't that good. The team wasn't that good. When Craig Kelly came on, that kind of changed everything. But um, for me and snowboarding, like, 
it changed my life because the main thing it, it changed in me was that I finally felt like I could get good at something and that passion hit, you know, and you hear people talk about this in, in different contexts, but like when you, in life, you suddenly find something you, you really want to get better at that mm -hmm. you identify with, it, it, it could completely be a game changer, not only for that activity, but then if you learn how to get good at something and you take the time and the, you know, you have to take that commitment. Let's yeah. say you're playing hockey, whatever it is, you're getting up early, you're on the road, you're doing all this training, and then you can apply that discipline to basically anything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's yeah. a, a super big believer in like team sport, competition, um, just, you know, activities and getting youth doing things because it's not really about whether they're skiing or skateboarding or whatever the sport is. It's just about that passion. You know, if you can, if you can instill some passion in someone, you can't just make it happen, but you can set things out there and help facilitate it. And, uh, yeah. you know, once you get that, maybe you got that for journalism, you know, where it just makes you, it makes you step up in ways that you didn't know how to do it before. Yeah. I think maybe what happened with me was growing up around, you know, all of these great stories, all of these, like, um, you know, I was actually weirdly enough talking to my mom about this earlier today. And like, like right before we got on the call, I was talking to her for like two hours and just, you know, catching up. Yep, yep. But I was talking about, you know, the type of people that I've always been drawn toward and they're not like really like put together people, you know, like the people <laughs> that I, I've decided to be friends with, um, you know, every time that, uh, my wife and I carry move to like a new city or whatever, and I'm trying to, you know, you're, you try to find your people. Right. And, and, you know, now that I'm 35, it's like, you know, there's jokes about making friends when you're in your thirties and it's tough. Right. So, you know, trying to dip your toes into different groups and meetups or whatever. And you just like, at least me, I can really only speak for myself, but you just find that like, those aren't your people. And then, when I'm trying to dial in, like, okay, who are my people? And they're kind of like, you know, the people that were involved in borderline, you know, they're, they might be like, uh, petty criminals, or <laughs> you know, and hopefully they've grown out of that at, at this age, but maybe they drink a little bit too much sometimes, or they dabble in drugs or, you know, they, they basically have seen kind of this, this underbelly of society and they've come back to tell the tale, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. And I think, you know, with borderline in particular, I think that was a lot of your dad's allure was that he had seen a rougher life before I knew him. Mm -hmm. Um, he'd been through some stuff and he's not shy to talk about it, but I think for, for, I think personally he knew that, you know, bored kids are kids in trouble, you know? And, um, he just was always going out of his way to validate kids and make them feel good, make them feel, um, like they belonged in something and uh, but to get back to what you're talking about yeah it's it's interesting how um, <laughs> you when you're talking about that stuff it brings up something um, about when I moved to Alaska about making friends um, yeah. it was no problem you know I was not mm -hmm. from there I never claimed to be an Alaskan I spent two years up there and you know quite a few trips back to go on your dad's boat and whatnot but um, you know I wasn't from there I never pretended to be but man, I was really accepted up there. It was like, you know, the old saying goes like real recognize real, like in mm -hmm. Alaska, 
they, you guys have seen plenty of people come up from all over, right? Mm -hmm. Come up to make money fishing, come up because they're running away from something, trying to find something. And I was one of those people. And, um, you know, it was from the day I moved there, it was, you know, I met people who were like-minded, who were into the shredding, mm -hmm. who were um, like the same music. And, and it was, I never had that feeling of like, you know, like I live in Oregon now and my, my, my wife's in the Bay Area and she moved up. It was like, okay, we got to get your plates changed and you get that California ID <laughs> out because, you know, that, that dude with the man butt at the bar like slams down her ID and gives her a dirty look, you know, and there was, there was none of that, none of that when I moved to Alaska. Alaska was, you know, it was, there was maybe some conflict within Alaska like we were talking about with kind of the old guard status quo, mm -hmm. you know, versus like these, what are these kids up to kind of thing, but that's, that's a whole different thing, you know. Yeah, that old guard. So that was probably G and B then, huh? Yeah, one well, maybe old guard. I'm I'm just talking about more like society, you know. Oh, okay, like, okay. Because like we came in that time where, it, you know, team sports were the only quote real sports. Mm, okay, yeah. You know, and so it's just kind of like that whole counterculture thing. I think was even more shocking up in Alaska, where maybe. You know, it wasn't as big a deal down in Southern California that people were dyeing their hair and, and doing all the fashion stuff. Yeah. But when you bring up GMB, I wasn't around for GMB. That was the original shop that, you know, when I when I first was going to school, that my buddies, you know, were all a part of that crew, and that crew predated me. And I think you know it's basically fading out about the time um, Borderline came to be. And I believe when the GMB. I think they got overextended from the skate park, from what I know, limited. And um, but what I do know is that um, Borderline took over their Diamond Center location, mm, and okay. so even though Borderline maybe not have been the first skate and snow shop in Anchorage, it was certainly the longest lasting, and I think the one that had the most impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know much about GNB, but I've heard from a few people that they considered themselves like super core and saw borderline as maybe more corporate do you remember what they thought about borderline you know um i'm sure there was a little bit of rivalry back then and, and it was funny because you know as i mentioned my the dudes i'm talking about like andy boz and a, a legend up there i mean i don't know if you yeah. know andy or not but that dude yeah I'm really glad i met him when i was a freshman in college and uh him and his buddy beltane came down and they were going to Fort Lewis College where I was and um, and then Juan Gomez the owner of GMB came down for the winter and so um, probably maybe an indicator right there why maybe the shop didn't last if he's down there all winter cruising but okay. um, yeah I'm sure there was some competition there um, and uh, you know those guys were just as cool as cool could be you know I was not a cool freshman in college I was a pretty nerdy dude who just wanted to snowboard and uh, they used to call me Timberly. That was their nickname for me. <laughs> I'm like, God, please don't let this one stick. Um, and uh, for, Timberly and his Worcester. Exactly, right? I'm painting a good picture. Um, so, yeah, man, I, I, um, these guys for some reason took me under their wing, and uh, we did all the contests together. And I had some success that year back in Colorado, and I won some stuff, but just amateur stuff. You know, I was by no means top of the chain, and um, I got a Burton sponsorship, which was cool. And then, but by the time I went up to Alaska, I, th I thought I was going to be hanging with those guys. But, you know, the GMB thing had broke up and, and snowboarding is kind of a youth sport. Those guys were going on to other stuff, snow machine, mm -hmm. working, whatever. And um, so by the time I was there, there, there was no GMB to speak of. 
and the, the game in town was borderline. And, um, you know, it was when I met your dad, I mean, just like a lot of other people, he, I just clicked with him, you know, mm -hmm. here's this guy who's realer than real and, uh, and just cool, you know? So he was doing his thing. I wanted to be a part of it. And back then did Alieska allow snowboards on the mountain? Yeah. By the time I got up there, they did. Okay. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it wasn't, I wouldn't say open arms. It was definitely some of that old school skier versus snowboard stuff back in the day, which I grew up at a mountain where we, the skiers and the snowboarders all gave each other a ton of shit and we're all friends. So it was mm -hmm. never really a factor for me, but certainly your dad faced a lot of obstacles when trying to get things going up there. So a lot of the original contests were at Arctic Valley mm -hmm. and, uh, and because um, I grew up in a place with just T-bars too, so I was at home there. But, you know, obviously it's a whole different kind of scene and mountain than Alieska. But Alieska, when I got there, the tram wasn't there yet. You couldn't ride that side of the mountain. Um, and it was a whole whole different kind of riding for me. Um, and it would kind of bring up a point of a lot of people, I think, go up to Alaska with a vision planted in their head of what they think Alaska is. And it's from the media, right? Like mm -hmm. the big turns, the pow days. Um you get up to Alaska and the snowboard scene is actually quite different, right? Mm -hmm. It's the kids aren't going up in helis and they're not even going up on, maybe they go up snow machines now, but back in the day, you know, it was, it was in the city and it was raining a lot and it was dark mm -hmm. a lot. And so my first snowboard sessions were like at Arctic Valley with the most basic rail, like just one little handmade rail, you know, and mm -hmm. a bunch of us kids just or me and a bunch of kids just hitting it and having fun. And so the actual snowboard scene in Alaska, was different than like the pro scene that you see in the videos where guys would come up with a budget and hang out and wait the rain out and then, then head up to the hill when the sun came out for a couple of days, you know? Yeah. But you wanted to go up in helis, right? I did, you know, but like, um, what's interesting is like, I'm sure when you talk to a lot of the young shredders, they were kind of on the come up at this point, right? The sport's new, they're young, it's exciting. Even though your dad's a little older than me, he came to snowboarding late and he was, um, he was getting better all the time. You know, your, your dad was a pretty ballsy rider for his age. I got to give him credit. Yeah. And uh, me, uh, it was kind of funny because I came up, I was like 23, I think, when I first came up. And I've been riding since I was 15 and since I was 16 really hard. And so, you know, I was already, I had peaked, you know. I was kind of used to being one of the better riders on the mountain, you know, and had some status in my little small pond down there in Durango, Colorado, and, and we had a good posse riders and we had fun and stuff. So when I came up to Alaska, I, you know, I had that little bit of attitude, like, yeah, I'm going to keep shredding up here, keep dominating. Yeah. And you know, Alaska kind of kicked my ass. Really? In a okay. good way. Hell yeah. Because it's a whole different kind of riding. You got flat light riding. I remember riding, chasing people around Alieska, and I didn't know where those bumps and things were. And I'd be next yeah. thing you know, I'd just be cartwheeling and and uh, <laughs> chasing those guys. Uh, I mentioned that you know I wasn't getting a ride every day because of the work schedule and whatnot. And uh, yeah. but in reality, it was the riding level, the, the level of snowboarding from like let's say eighty whatever, eighty whatever up through the mid nineties was getting exponentially better every year mm -hmm. everything about it you know the technicality of the tricks what people are doing how big they're going and i moved up to alaska in a point where i mean i went from being one of the better riders on the mountain to just being completely in the middle 
mm, completely. Okay. I mean, there was, I wish I knew some of the names, but there was just these riders that would hang out the shop, cool dudes. I want, I'd go ride with them and they'd be busting a seven, like a big seven, you know, and, and doing <laughs> yeah. all these things. And, and it was just like, okay, you know, and I remember the first time I rode some really steep stuff and, you know, in, in Colorado that it gets steep and then it kind of shelves out and then it gets steep. So, yeah, you know, I think the first time I fell and started tumbling and started gaining speed during the tumble like that's a, that's a different <laughs> that's a different kind of vibe you know and then you got yeah. all that above tree line stuff and and so you know alaska was really good for me because it just it there was no decision to be made about you know my time as a competitive rider trying to be the best guy on the hill was was done you know mm-hmm. and um it would have been done in colorado too i mean I went, back, I went back home and was like holy shit these jumps in the park now you know mm-hmm. but oh um, yeah but you know Alaska helped put the stamp on that. Like, okay, you're, you're into riding because you love it. Yeah. You're not into it because you're the best. And, um, you know, like another good story like that is like Borgstead. I worked with him for a little bit and I remember him like talking at the shop and asking me about like my time when I was sponsored and asked me about racing and, you know, like my best success in snowboarding was, was doing a discipline they don't even do anymore. It was racing in mainly GS races. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, dual slalons. We used to race on Saturday, do the half pipe on Sunday. That was kind of the, the way back then. And um, and so Jason and Mary, like, really, like, he he was focused from way back. And he was studying the game, you know. So he, yeah. he was picking up whatever knowledge he could get from me in a really respectful way. And, of course, who doesn't like to talk about their accomplishments? So I'm waxing him about, <laughs> yeah, and you got to look three <laughs> gates ahead. And you got to do this and whatever. And um, then I remember we competed at a at a, a border cross at, at Arctic. And I just remember him like, I didn't know he was hovering behind me until he decided to hit the gas and blow by me like I wasn't even moving. <laughs> I'm like, all right. <laughs> so yeah, it was humbling at times, but it was also super fun. And that led to your dad um, fulfilled my goal. You know, I went up there with one goal. It wasn't to wash dishes. It wasn't to hang out at the mall. Even though all that stuff was fun. My goal was to get out of the heli, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that happened within... It happened one time my first year, um, and it was for Christmas bonus. He he rallied the troops and um, arranged a heli trip for us. It was, dude, it was fucking unreal. It was still one of the most unreal days of riding in my whole life. He, we, you know the caddy limo. Yeah. So he picked us up in the limo, which I normally didn't ride in too often. And it was me and Gordy and Corbett, and we drove out. Maybe Rob, I can't remember. But we we drove out to the middle of this field near Hatcher Pass, and I remember waiting in this field early morning, and the only person out there was a dog sled team, and then like boom, 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 here comes uh, Pete Iverson and his dad came flying in mm-hmm. in this old bubble copter, and uh, they touched down, and I'm you know I'm already having fun. This is just unreal, like. Heli coming, yeah. you know, limo ride out, heli coming in at dawn. Yeah. And I still remember your dad, man. He's like, cruised out, shakes hands with Pete's dad. And he's and his famous thing he said, well, famous to me anyway, was like, I don't want to hit the same mountain twice. I don't want to cross a track. <laughs> and that's what we did, man. We, we teamed up into teams of two. Corbett was my riding partner. And big shout out to Corbett, man. That first year, he, he was my boy, man. He always took care of me. But, um, we split up in teams of two. We were at Hatcher Pass, which we might as well have been on the moon for all I knew. Like it was just <laughs> like another world. Yeah. And that's what we did. We hit eight mountains, eight different runs, 
slashed it up. I remember at one point flying on the copter, because um, those old ones, you know, like Pete's dad was in the middle. We were on each each side of him watching. I remember Pete getting kind of, the slough came above him and knocked him off the little rock ledge he was standing on. He got swept over and I'm thinking like, <laughs> holy shit, oh my God. And Pete's dad just gets a chuckle, laughs, <laughs> says something and cruises on. And I'm just like, dude, I'm dealing with a different level of people here. Like, <laughs> So we made it through that, you know, all those days back then it was, um, you know, as far as safety goes, we weren't wearing avalanche transceivers. We didn't yeah. have shovels beacons probes we had, we had none of that um but we had big smiles and we got through it all and uh yeah so that was my first heli experience and uh it was bitching it was super fun you had a couple of close calls in helis right yeah and that was later on when i got to juno i got to do a little bit more down there and things you had a couple sketchy moments for sure um maybe i should get to that when we when we talk juno time because uh, I don't want to jump get too there. much ahead. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's get there by way of this. Okay, get there right now? Yeah. You're the boss. Um, yeah, when I got down to Juno, um, you know, it was a whole different ball of wax because because your dad um, gave me the opportunity to open a shop down there for me. He ran it by Rob, and uh, and then Rob didn't want to go down, I think. And, and uh, so, yeah, I went down there. And um, so, yeah, I super brown nose the heli pilots i tuned up all their kids boards and, <laughs> and uh, it was funny when i first opened the shop because you know i got to town it's like this landlocked town right yeah and uh yeah you know i went home for the summer came back up so i had some wheels so i, I went from really scrubbing you know you know that that guy that tlc sings about you know, at the left-hand <laughs> side of the passenger's yeah. ride, trying to holler at them. Well, that was me, you know, I was scrubbing up yeah. there in AK, doing acreage. And then suddenly I, I go down south and, you know, your dad in his typical style is just like, I get off the boat, I take the ferry up, you know, I'm all pumped. And I get off the ferry and the first thing I do is go ditch my surfboard in the bushes because I don't want to look like a kook driving out with a surfboard on my car in, in, <laughs> in Juneau. And I kind of come up the coast trying to do some surfing. And, yeah. And, uh, Shout out to whoever found that board, by the way. Oh, um, someone stole it? Yeah, I never saw that board again. Oh, jeez. Uh, what a random thing for some dude just cruising in, in Juneau and be like, what's a surfboard doing here in the bushes? Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I call up Scott and I'm like, yo, Scott, I'm in town. Kind of don't know what to do with myself. It's you know probably August. And uh, he's like, well, there's this kid that's been calling me a bunch and asking me when I'm going to open a shop. So, so give this guy a call and so he gives me chris courier's number oh I, no I, way i drive out to Ock bay chris is this 15 year old kid his parents aren't home and i'm like hey you know I'm the, the dude's gonna be open the borderline shop and and he's like all right my mom said you know this is your room down here and, and i'm like whoa whoa dude let me meet your parents first you know but yeah why don't you cruise me on town so he shows me on town and yeah i get back to get back to his house and and uh yeah sure enough i lived there for the next month till i found an apartment uh, you know, Lisa, Chris's mom was, you know, really hoping I was going to turn him around and get, <laughs> and get him, you know, focused on the football or whatever on, that they were into. Maybe a little better at school. He's already been kind of a rebel. And uh, I'm not sure I fulfilled that mission. But what was awesome was just like from my first day in Juno, I just got open arms. You know, I came in yeah. and, and Chris has five brothers and sisters. So I became the seventh kid. I was on the chore list about which chores <laughs> I had to do. Um, you know, his parents are as good as they come. And, and, and so, yeah, that was kind of my start to Juno. And unlike Anchorage, you know, I had more of a position to be a community member, 
um, an influencer of the, of, you know, the kids and whatnot. And so I, I gotta say, like, I can't even remember one bad experience, you know, it was, it was really fun being in that town and yeah. not only getting to meet these shredders cause the kids were just incredible. I mean, the, the team, the team, um, of riders I hooked up with down there was, they had something really special going on, but it was also just the community, you know, that kind of size town. Yeah. Um, they, they really needed and welcomed a shop like that. And so I got to know everyone's parents and, uh, you know, they come into the shop. And like I said, like, as soon as I opened, it's like, there was just a flood of boards that needed to be tuned up and fixed and stuff. So that kept us busy for a while. And then, you know, mm -hmm. we said about doing the retail, but, um, that was kind of a long answer that I didn't even get to the question, which was I go up in these helis and they like, you know, sometimes you get an extra seat so you could go up and, um, and at one point I had some buddies come up who were doing some filming for a little local project in Colorado. And we bought the heli time. We were up with um, Bruce Griggs and Sean Dog. And back then and things were really loose. Um, mm -hmm. You didn't take a safety class. You paid by the gas, right? So a lot of times we would just get a drop off, you know, get a flight up to somewhere near Eagle Crest and yeah. 40, 50 bucks each. And then we'd session a kicker up top and then ride down and then hike the rest out at the bottom where there wasn't snow. And so it was accessible back then. You could heli. Um, anyway, I had my friends come up and we went way across the water and we're doing first, you know, never ridden stuff and all that, all that claim worthy kind of heli boarding. Mm -hmm. And I wish I could remember the pilot's name. Um, there was a Vietnam veteran pilot that was just some of those pilots, man. They're just the coolest dudes, right? Yeah. And uh, this guy was, he was, he was really a cool guy. And anyway, he was flying us. And all of a sudden, it was, it was me, a couple of my homies in the back, and it was one of our guides and his girlfriend in the middle in the front. It was an A-star, so it was a six-seater. And uh, man, all of a sudden, there was this knock, knock, knock. And what had happened was, like nowadays, all the gear goes in one of those baskets, right? Mm -hmm. And then the top is a metal basket. Well, back then, it was, a, it was a metal basket on the bottom. The top, they had like two Cordura straps that were like seatbelt material. Okay. And so that's how they tightened everything down. But what they'd done is there was a brand new snowboard that was on the very top. And then so when they tightened it down tightly, um, the vibrations of the helicopter, the edge of the snowboard worked like a knife and it cut through um, the webbing. Mm. So then that noise we heard was the first something, a ski pole slapping against the side of the helicopter oh, no. before before it like flew off into space. And so the pilot caught wind of what was caught, saw what was happening. He turned the thing into an upside down dive to empty the basket. Oh my so gosh. He, so, he, so as soon as he flipped that thing, you know, at 90 or whatever, upside down to, to empty the basket out safely, all the alarm bells start going off in the copter, right? So it's just like a movie. It's like, right, right, right. Yeah. Like, and the, the girlfriend and the guide starts instantly into full panic mode. Like, we're going to fucking die. We're going to fucking die. We're all fucking dying right now. God damn. Oh you know, gosh. I don't want to die. I'm screaming. I'm sitting in the back being like, okay, where's the locator thing? Where's the, okay, what are we going to do if we, you know, doing that whole deal. Yeah. And then he got everything emptied out. He later told us, like, if one thing would have hit either the front or the back, we would have been toast. We would have gone down. Oh, my and gosh. we just, I just remember that visual of, like, the snowboards just twirling down <laughs> out of sight, yeah. down into the forest, right? And, um, and you guys were upside down. Yeah. By then, we probably straightened it out, and we went and landed, and there was a couple, you know, a little bit of minor damage to the helicopter, some, you know, chunks on the side or whatever. 
and um yeah we all lived which was great and um so that was a close call and a couple close calls of just your typical snowboard stuff you know i punched my foot through what i thought was a nice firm cornice and almost had a 200 footer one day and you know while i was up there there was a couple people that passed um mm. doing that kind of stuff because it was all pretty new yeah and uh, it's dangerous even if it's not new um and so yeah i was really lucky to get through that whole phase but it was also you know most of the riding there was just just ripping that eagle crest that place is amazing this pilot that you were trying to remember his name was it chet simmons i don't think it was chet i think okay. chet was more of a, a more of a valdez guy uh, he was a local juno guy um yeah i should have been prepared for that one because because he kept us alive <laughs> okay you know something i just i keep wanting to ask you even though we're a little bit past it is what kind of chores were you doing at chris Currier's house <laughs> <laughs> well his dad is really good at making coffee he he taught me that the way you make a good cup of coffee is you have everything clean you clean the grinder you clean the uh coffee maker and mm -hmm. so i i wasn't good enough to do coffee at that house but um and too much coffee that's what he taught me too people make it with too many grounds mm. so no but it was they had a list on the fridge and it rotated so yeah i was cleaning the kitchen or doing whatever and you know, by then some of the, the kids were older and um and so, you know, it was kinda like they were just I think stoked to have someone else around the house, to be honest. Okay, so you're in Juno, you're opening up the original borderline location there in nineteen ninety-three. What did Juno's snow and skate scene look like back then? Um it was like something that was just growing on its own like almost as a like influenced a little bit by the outside like steve graham had come in the year before and mm -hmm. it was 93 94 i came to anchorage and then so i came down to juno in 94 95 i believe if i have my dating right and um yeah they'd had a couple ski shops that sold some stuff but they they were lacking that scene you know yeah um and a lot of the kids hadn't really they hadn't traveled like now those kids have all been all over right but mm -hmm. but at the time um it was just a very homegrown scene like alieska i'm sorry alieska um eagle crest was this cool cool prior you know mom pa style area it's kind of like a mini mount baker yeah um, with great terrain and what what i was impressed by like from the day i got there it was just like these kids were pumped they were pumped to ride you know i formed the first borderline team before i even got on snow with them we used to go to the uh the swimming pool and they would just be launching all these double back misty stuff off the high dive you know with <laughs> yeah. kickboards laying on the kickboards trying to do all their training and i didn't need to even snowboard with these guys to know they were good yeah and so i tried to emulate what your dad was doing up north and i you know made uh made a little team i think the first team was like uh chris courier obviously um and then Dave Furman and Bubba and mm -hmm. Ryan Collard, Mike Morgan. I remember a, a real young Lando, like missing that first cut and being so bummed. And of course he made the team like he was the next guy to get on it, right? And yeah. uh, the rest is history with him. But um, yeah, we had that like, we had this core little team. And then there was some old, older guard guys like um, Scott Baxter, Dan, Dan uh, Villanueva. Mm -hmm. if i have his last name right and those guys were cool as could be too but the this younger group of riders was just i'd never seen riding like that cody i've been a lot around a lot of good snowboarders at that point but 
the energy around these kids was just something special. It was when I finally, when the mountain opened up and we started riding together, you ride within this pack of those guys back then. And it was right when all the off access stuff was just starting to come to be. And most guys couldn't do it yet. These guys could, and they could also do a bunch of cool flat spins with grabs and big air. And they're all about, you know, just innovating, pushing the sport. They were just such big fans of snowboarding. They, they freaking loved it. Yeah. And riding with them, it was infectious. Like, get to check out the terrain there. You know, you go down the road and they're flying off in each direction. They go out to that big ass wind lip and they just be hucking themselves and <laughs> cheering each other on. And it was just like, I remember being like one one whole ridge over from those guys and, and having them. Sorry about the squeaky couch here. Um, I remember being like one ridge over and just, you know, doing those, just some pal line, just having like, oh, these kids just, oh, you know, <laughs> there was just this vibe that was so cool in Juno. And, and the vibe was cool up in Anchorage too. I think what made Juno maybe a little more special was just its isolation. Mm-hmm. And you put on Juno's first snowboard competition. I did. I did. Um, it wasn't even my idea, to be honest. It was, um, it was someone had approached me, uh, there was a tragedy on opening day. This young man named Ricky Willard, he had, he had fell in a tree well head first, a young kid, mm. and passed. And um, so someone approached me about wanting to do a uh, memorial for him. And I was like, all right, yeah. And it was a good excuse to do something. And yeah. so, um, so we did a memorial comp for him. And yeah, it was badass. It was super fun. I was just trying to like do my best Scott Liska impression, you know? <laughs> and so went up to the mountain and... Um, you know, I think it's probably Ashley's dad probably helped me out. I don't remember, but I remember getting to go up in the snowcat and then being like, what do you want to do? <laughs> and I was like, all right. <laughs> and so I emulated what I did when I was a kid. We made a race on Saturday and we made a freestyle on Sunday. So we went up and we plowed out a bank slalom course and um, it was pretty low tech. I think we had a stopwatch at the top that we yelled and someone at the bottom put their arm down when they crossed the line you know <laughs> yeah. and uh and then the next day we moved a little bit we moved a little snow around and then we um and then we did a freestyle comp on the bank slalom run which looking back probably was kind of pretty ghetto but um <laughs> so but you know the riders were good you know i remember like yeah. chauncey or dave Furman or someone you know they, they'd figure out how to gap the, the berms and things like that and so yeah i put on a comp and um it was super fun. And I think more important than being fun for me, it was just like, you know, going back to like when you're a kid, mm -hmm. the competition is good. It gives you something to work towards, you know, community type thing and chance for them to be good at something. And so it was, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You also took the crew that would later be known as the Juno boys on their first competition trip to Anchorage. What did that look like? That was kind of a hot mess in some ways, you know. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Well, it was cool. Uh, you know, shout out to their parents for trusting me, I guess. Um, but yeah, there was a there was a contest up at Arctic that your dad was doing. So, so yeah, we we flew up from Juneau to to Anchorage, rented a minivan, and I don't remember which rider it was. One of them kids had. He'd either never been on a plane or he'd never been on a Juno. You know, this was these were this wasn't like the we've traveled the world crew. You know, this was like <laughs> they were freaking pumped to be going to Anchorage, right? And um, yeah, so we get up there, we rent a van, we go up, uh, we go to Arctic, and we go to the contest. And your dad's 
your dad's doing this typical thing, right? He's got a he's got some stereo system rigged up up there. I don't know how. And yeah. he's got some kickers going. I think we were going over our car or something. And and um, yeah, that was the first time the Juno Boys represented. And I still remember the locals kind of you know. Of course, they got their own scene. A bunch of rippers up there. And I remember him. I remember in particular Ryan Collard just doing some really nice off axis spinning. You know, whether it was a misty rodeo, or whatever, and then and just sticking them clean, you know, that yeah. cool style. And I remember being like, holy shit, who are these guys, you know? Yeah. So the boys were fun, and, you know, we went back to Girdwood, and that's what was a little tough for me personally because, like I said, I had a little more responsibility to be a, to mentor, a mentor at this point. But I'm 24, and, you know, I can't really argue. I got my shit together 100%. And, and uh, you know, they kind of got off and started getting into shit as five unchaperoned, 15 year olds 16 year olds are gonna do <laughs> yeah um yeah. and so yeah i was like okay but you know it wasn't nothing of any harm happened i do remember it was kind of funny we had this like rental minivan with um bald tires and sometimes you know how like girdwood will be raining and then it gets clear and cold and it just becomes an ice rink yeah where it took us like an hour to try to get up the hill you <laughs> kept driving up yeah. this hill in the neighborhood then pin pong ping pong back down to the bottom and, <laughs> and try again and so it's just those silly adventures when you're young and trying to figure stuff out so yeah leading all those guys on the first contest was was super cool and you know i was only in that scene up there for a couple of years but it, it was never a surprise to me you know when lando went on to get his own pro model is that maybe the coolest thing you can do in snowboarding um, that was never a surprise and yeah. uh, it was never a surprise to me when all these other guys, when, you know, Ashley had his success and I actually just rode with Chauncey the other day. He lives oh, right uh, on. Yeah. He, uh, he's a cat driver at Timberline and, and, um, he rides that like huge doughboy, right? Yeah. He rides, he rode the doughboy with me. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's ripping it. I'm yeah, looking at my little 159, like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, like. I know he's a full adult now, but you know, when I'd see him ride, his style is still on point. He's still a mm-hmm. ripping rider. He's still super passionate about it. And, um, you know, I just still see that wide-eyed kid when I, when I see him ride and talk. And so that was really cool hooking up with him a couple weeks ago. Something interesting I'm noticing here is that your time in Alaska, you took on this mentor role, you know, at Diamond Center, at the Diamond Center borderline, and then again at the uh the juno borderline yeah and i think um i don't think that was really how i thought about it at the time as much maybe that's some hindsight of um but yeah it it was something that like there was people doing that for me when i was a kid you know Mm -hmm. and um you know, I chased around this group of older guys called the Wild Men at Birth and Pass, and I was just this little little dude following behind them, and they would just tease me and they you know, egg me mm-hmm. on, make me jump off stuff, and and um, you know, I remember one of those guys. He was a gnarly dude, and he was, but he was also the best skier on the mountain. And I remember him pulling me aside one time and being like, "Dude, I see these guys driving their nice cars and shit." And these guys were like, blue collar Denver construction one of my the guy i'm talking about was a carpet layer he was a little ass dude that could carry like hundreds of pounds of carpet i mean another larger than life figure for me yeah I remember him pulling me aside and being like dude man go to college get a good job man drive a nice car like don't 
don't be like us and you know my father, i want to be like you guys you guys are the coolest guys i know you know and uh, he didn't say those words of course i'm paraphrasing but um you know i had some good mentorship i had people looking out for me my big brother um his best friend tom and his crew were all always looking out for me and pushing me mm-hmm. and um you know it's, it's kind of the duty and for me personally um when i worked at dakine later on I, I got a lot spent a lot of time in hawaii or more time around the Hawaiian culture, I should say, with all the, the owners and the, the people and the reps. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Hawaii, there's a big part of the culture is for aunties and uncles and their responsibility to the community, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's something that got fostered in me early on through working at Borderline. You know, I, I wouldn't say I was doing very much mentoring. I was just trying to do a Scott Leska impression. <laughs> Scott, yeah, okay. Scott was the mentor. Scott would treat every dude with respect, whether it was someone's dad with a crew cut or it was like some little kid who was trying to learn how to ollie. You know, that kid would come in the shop and your dad had a kind of a knack for always knowing everyone's name. Mm. He wasn't like, hey, dude, <laughs> like yeah. so many of the stoners are. Okay. <laughs> he, he would be like, what up, Charlie? What up, so-and-so? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and man, when you're a kid and you're and you're insecure, that's, that's huge. So yeah. I wouldn't say I did that much mentoring. It just kind of set the stage about what I feel is like a big responsibility for all of us in a community, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, like I went and helped my friend uh, teach his kids skiing just yesterday, and they kept thanking me like, oh, thanks so much, it was so much easier with you and blah, blah. And it just struck me like, wow, just these kids, these families are used to like this mentality that they have to do it all themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I think there really is something to that, to that uncling thing that, that not only is necessary, but it's also, you know, it's it's super fun when you get to help, like, get other people stoked, you know? Yeah, you know, again, in those emails that you've been sending me, you said that you've always thought of my dad as, like, an uncle. Yeah, absolutely. Family. I mean, he took me in, and you become, I became part of your family, Cody, and, like, uh, you know, that word gets kicked around all the time in business. You know, it's all here at the Dow Industrial Chemical family, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And yeah. like, so it gets used ad nauseum and, and it kind of loses its meaning. But, you know, for me, family meant, it doesn't mean like we all went camping and sang Kumbaya together and played the acoustic. It meant that your dad was real and took me into his world, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, so I got to know your mom and, and your brothers and, and just by strictly just hanging out you know Mm -hmm. and scott didn't put up some front and then have his family be something now the cards were on the table you know Mm -hmm. and i i kind of had a question for you on that tip was like how did you feel about sharing your dad with all of us or having guys be like your dad's so cool and maybe you had some shit going on at home that wasn't that cool a fight or whatever you know (laughs) and like how did that make how did that make you feel as a kid you know the way the way that i've always thought about this, you know, categorized it is, and I I can't speak for, you know, my, my other brothers, Jake, Derek, or Colton, and I can't speak for my sister, Kiana. But for me, my dad was always like the oldest brother, you know, he was always like, and if I, I know that if I think about him that way, and I realize that as I gotten, I've gotten older, I, I did think about him that way when I was younger in more, in more ways than one. I think that that helped uh, understand him better. And so he was just the oldest brother. 
you know, for the most part, because he was the coolest one. He was the funniest one. He was, you know, because we're all kind of like emulating him, you know, him being uh, our dad. Yep. And so we're, we, we all have like the same sense of humor as him for the most part. We are, for the most part, we're all like dedicated to our craft, whatever that is, you know, whether it's our job, whether it's uh, something that we want to make a job. So yeah, I think that he's like a, like a brother father. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense actually. Cause he's kind of like my brother and uncle. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think, you know, and, and one thing that made Scott, I think a lot of kids really want to be like him was just like, there's not a whole lot of fake with your dad or maybe mm-hmm. there's 0.0. He really was not a person, your average person, they get a little bummed out or offended by someone, you know, they, they keep a smile and they talk shit later. Right. Your dad was not afraid to call you out, call someone out right in front of their face, yeah. tell them how they feel. <laughs> um, and it was so refreshing, you know? Yeah. Your dad's also super tough. We all knew that. Yeah. Um, I think as a dude, you kind of, you respect that, you know? Even if that's not your style, it's it's certainly respect someone who's not, a, who's not afraid to say what he means, back it up. Yeah. And uh, and be real, you know, and and so I think we all recognize that and that's why he's a little bit of a hero for us. Yeah, I'm 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 trying to think I had something to say to that, but do you want me to tell some stories about your dad being tough while you're thinking of it? Sure, yeah, give me some stories about my dad being tough. <laughs> <laughs> I got two that just pop into my mind. And uh one was um King of the Hill contest. You know, I I never um, I went to the King of the Hill, but just to work. I, I don't remember if I brought my snowboard or not, but I know I never rode it. Um, I've never ridden at Valdez to this day, maybe someday. But um, I went to just help your dad work, work the show and the contest and everything. I think it was the first one. And so we already mentioned he brought up Pennywise and Offspring, mm-hmm. which was badass. And I remember like it was all ages, but the kids were like, they had the stage in front, but then the kids had to watch the whole thing from the back mm-hmm. <laughs> until at some point one of the bands turned around. So we're going to let the adults stare at our asses for a song or something <laughs> like that. But anyway, um, but I remember doing something and your dad just comes like stumble, kind of stumbling in all kind of crazy. And he's, he's lumped up, man. He's like not looking good. And it turns out that three dudes were trying to break into the to the caddy to get all the prizes. Huh. And Valdez kind of had that rep of getting kind of rough and tumble back then. And uh, so your dad basically took on three dudes, three against one, <laughs> beat them down, solved the problem. Yeah. No cops called, you know, none of that. Just handled it. Yeah. And I was like, God damn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other thing that stuck in my mind was actually... Years later, when I just came back for a borderline camp and like, you know, I was like, I always, when I, later on, when I worked for uh, Nitro Snowboards and I worked for Dekine, I think it was Nitro years, it was really cool to be able to sponsor the camp. Mm-hmm. You know, when I did demo boards, I'd always be putting them to the side and I'd just do whatever I could to like, to help sponsor his deal. And anyway, I came back for a camp and I, I think I remember, what year was it? I'm not going to try, but anyway, so we're at camp and we're just doing some downtime in Anchorage, hanging out. And, and he was like, hey, you want to go to, me and Jake got a hockey game. You want to go? Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so it was like intramural hockey, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so. Um, and real we quick. Went, uh, yeah. I think they were called the borderline scrubs. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So you might have actually been there. I remember I remember you go I remember being at the game, sitting in the little bleachers with your mom Sharon and and, and some of the some of the kids, I don't remember which ones, could have been Colton or you, whoever. But anyway, so they were playing hockey and and like this dad type dude just checked Jake pretty hard into the boards. And like gave him a, a good hard check, you know. Mm-hmm. Probably a little over the line for intramural, right? Your dad no hesitation yeah skate 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 hockey stop (laughs) boom one blow dude's knocked out on the ice game over yeah i was there i remember (laughs) that and your mom's like god damn it scott (laughs) (laughs) you were there yeah i was there i remember that yeah i knew he was gonna do it too right when Right when Jake went down, I was like, oh, no. Here it comes. Dad's going in for some retribution now. <laughs> yeah, and there was nothing subtle about it. It wasn't, I'm not, I'm not going to play, keep playing and give him a check back. It was like, yeah. yeah. No, there was always a fine line at those hockey games between hockey player and goon. You know, it's like you just needed to, <laughs> to flip that switch and everyone was fighting. And I'm sure it wasn't all that unusual for hockey and for up there, but you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at things through my Colorado guy lens, right? And uh, <laughs> you know, you just you know, I've seen a fair number of people get knocked out over the years, but never at an intramural game. <laughs> so that was a good one. I think that's that's two examples of him being real tough. But yeah. you know, most of the time, he, it was the opposite. You know, your dad was actually just really encouraging, really cool really fun to ride with um pumping the kids up and and trying to get after it himself you know so i think not only was an inspiration to like the young guys but to all them old guys sitting on their asses doing nothing you know you know something i just thought about that i feel like you could give some good perspective to but you know we're sitting here and we're talking about you know the old days these these kind of golden years of not just the Alaska snow and skate scene, but kind of, you know, the budding snow and skate scene back in the day. I wonder, how do you think today compares to that? I think there are two different things for skating and for snowboarding. I think skating is always going to have a real core element because it's in the streets, mostly. Uh, it's super accessible. You know, you just need shoes and a board or maybe even your buddy's board. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just got that raw element, you know, because it's really it's it's really difficult to do. But I also think that the skate industry itself has done a much better job of regulating their teams and managing their teams to these really elite levels. And what I think that comes from is there's more rider, skater-owned companies, you know. Mm-hmm. So when Tony Hawk starts Birdhouse, He's dealt with team managers his whole life, right? Mm-hmm. So you know he's going to run a tight team the right way. And so I think skating, you know, even though it's become an Olympic sport and it's and it's um, you know it's it's more mainstream than it used to be for sure, just like punk rock and everything else is. Um, mm-hmm. It's still got a real core element to it. I mean, thank God for Thrasher magazine. You, you YouTube Thrasher, and you know you got some you got some core shit to watch a lot of a yeah. lot of days, you know. And so I think. Snowboarding, on the other hand, is always going to be a little bit of a marriage be- between somewhere between skating and skiing um, because it's a little bit more of an elite sport. You need yeah. to have gear. You need to have a way up to the mountain. You need to have a lift ticket, et cetera. And a lot of the culture and technology came from the ski side, which is, you know, northern European, 
white guy's sport for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so when snowboarding started blowing up um, in the 80s, 90s, it was a pretty low bar to get sponsored because there was a lot of companies trying to get into it. You know, it wasn't just the core snowboard companies, but, you know, you got the surf companies coming in, the Billabongs and O'Neill, and then you got the Volcoms and, you know, this kind of, I wouldn't, I don't want to go as far as say people trying to cash in on it, but there's a lot of people trying to get involved in snowboarding, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot more sponsorship got, opportunities got kicked around. Whereas like, even to get on a flow team for a, for a legit skate company, that's akin to like becoming a pro basketball player, you know, mm, okay. the best of the best of the best yeah. will, will get on those kind of things. And I think the bar actually was a little bit low for snowboarding. Like, for example, the first contest I competed in was the Worlds in Breckenridge in 86, I want to say, 87, something like that, in the juniors. And according to the piece of paper, I was the 11th best snowboarder in the world. I didn't grab my edge. I didn't get up on the <laughs> lip. And, uh, you know, I remember watching Terry Kidwell with my mouth open, though. He was the, the supreme style back then. Yeah, and, he was. Um, and, I mean, God, that guy. And his board was really ahead of its time as well. But, um, you know, so I think, I think the now and then question it's kind of where you're at in your own head, where it's at, where is it at for the individual rider? Mm -hmm. There's riders out there where snowboarding's as fresh and cool as it ever was, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. if, if you're in it. Now, of course, you know, the bigger picture is it's, it's gone more mainstream. It's more of a um, acceptable thing to do, which is, you know, it's, it's funny back in the day because yeah, you're not accepted and you, you get some stuff that kind of sucks, uh, you know, but for the most part, being a rebel is kind of fun too, right? Yeah. You've had this extensive career working in snowboarding. You worked for Nitro, like you've mentioned, Dekine for 13 years, and then Smith. You really started from the ground up. You started as a rep, then you got into customer service, then you became a marketing manager, then a product manager, and then a sales manager. I feel like there's so much there so much experience and so much knowledge that your jobs could be a podcast in themselves. But if you were to kind of distill all of that into an understanding or takeaway of working in the industry, what would that sound like? Well, maybe we can do a podcast just like on uh, fast keystrokes, you know, con control alts <laughs> might be a fascinating <laughs> one for your listeners. Um, no, I think, I actually started as sub rep, which is far below sales rep because the old model back in the day was you're the rep for whatever burden, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, you're making 8% of this, of the sales, 8% of the, so if you're doing a million bucks in Colorado, you're making 80 grand a year. And, and out of that you're you are, you know, paying for your, your crew and your, your expenses and whatnot. Um, they're independent contractors typically. So the old model was you hired a tech rep or what became a sub rep later on. And basically you're an indentured servant. Mm. Like I remember when the dude hired me, it was hard to get the job in the first place, but then he's like, all right, you gotta, we're going to compete with Bert. We're going to do like these 30 demos. And basically he told me straight up, I'm not going to pay you shit. <laughs> you got minimum wage. I think I was like driving around this Astro van doing demos with like no expense budget. I remember like, you know, trading a dude in Utah, trading the lifties some Astro deck so I could crash in their, <laughs> in their like lifty lodging and waiting for them all to go to bed and all those kind of stories. So yeah. you start at the bottom, but the deal is then you're going to pay your dues and then someday you're going to get your own lines yeah. and, then, and then you'll make the big money. Cause actually the reps, 
the reps are arguing maybe where you can stop in their career because you know they make good money the good ones okay but um what happened over time was that turn and burn didn't really work if as the consolidation happened you know there's certain reps can really make a difference in sales for the territory and mm. so if you're a brand trying to hire a rep everyone wants the same guy right so what they started doing was forming agencies so instead of just burning their employees out they would partner up with guys make them more partners and that's the modern that's that's the way they do it now you okay know? um like the the crews that currently service to kind up there for you you know good crew of dudes same with smith um and so forth and so yeah i started as a sub rep and i thought i was done that year i worked for a year had some fun you know, went to my first sales meeting and all these things I'd heard about, you know, went to my first trade show and after watching your dad and Jay take off to the trade show and the stories, you kind of, you know, you mythalize it, you make it a myth a little bit like how cool it must be and everything. Yeah. I, I had no idea how many lanyards I was going to have in a shoebox <laughs> a couple of years later. But, um, you know, I did a year of that, but the money wasn't there. And I was like, okay, I'm done with school. And, you know, I actually parted ways with the dude, I mean, like, because he wasn't into partnering up and and it was really by chance um, that the distributorship for for Nitro changed. It used to be distributed by DeKine back in the day. And so it was out of Hood River and, and the same people that worked at DeKine worked at Nitro. And, and, and you know, DeKine was becoming its own entity and becoming legit in a big snow company as well as surf and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and so they sold the distributorship and... It went to the east coast and so i got a call from a, from one of the other sales reps that knew me from the meetings and stuff and he's like hey timmy which is i started getting called timmy in sales for some reason which was interesting <laughs> but uh <laughs> dude's like hey timmy you want to come out here and take a job you know so that was my chance to go in-house yeah and so you know kind of like juno i just was like opportunities often come up when you are willing to do things that other people don't want to take on or you know people had a good life going in hood river so Nobody wanted to move from Hood River to Connecticut for, for Nitro, right? Mm. And so uh, most people stayed over at DeKine. And, but I was like, all right. <laughs> and so <laughs> I moved over. I, I, drove, uh, I drove out east. And the first place was, uh, it was uh, Stamford, Connecticut, which is like right off Highway 95. And it was like this kind of industrial zone. And um, it was a distributorship of Italian companies. An Italian company named Dolomite or Dolomite had bought um, nitro and they just did ski boots and they did those like like you know when everyone's like puffy coat era for hip-hop in the city and they saw yeah. a bunch of mountaineering boots kind of like the upper tims kind of thing and um anyway so it was this weird thing of i was working with all different italian distributors so there was like the dolomite boot guys the perugula chocolate guys you know some guys selling sinks and and tiles from italy <laughs> it was just like fully <laughs> random right yeah <laughs> and i'd hear these snowboarders they just kind of plop down one other dude came out from nitro he was the warranty guy his name is chris vede and he is actually the um the national uh, vp of sales now at dekine so he, mm. he went he stayed with it all these years but he lasted about a year on the east coast because east coast back then was a different world you know, especially after spending some time up in AK. I mean, I'm talking pretty conservative. Now, if you go east, everyone's kind of trying to look like they live in Boulder. But back then, it was very tucked in, very old school. We used to really get mean mugged, asked to leave places, just how we were dressed and things like that. Really? People would ask you to leave? Oh, yeah. We got asked to leave a couple places just for wearing hoodies, huh. things like that. And so it was like, 
it was really old school and it was it was weird but the flip side and the good side was i started working for nitro mm-hmm. and in germany nitro is a whole nother ball of wax like we would call it the hasselhoff syndrome because they were the number two brand in europe but in the states we were always struggling to you know to compete against all the snowboard brands but i would go over to, to germany a lot you know and start going to meetings and summer camps and things like that and like Tommy DeLago and Sepp Ardelt, the two founders of Nitro, they're like the coolest dudes you'd ever want to meet. I mean, so legit, so rad, so family style. I just got, I just got really lucky that I got to hook up with these people. So while I was eking out a strange existence in, in Connecticut, because unlike I mentioned, you know, being so welcome when I, when I moved up north, it was kind of like, People don't really move to Connecticut, you know, from the West. I joked about all the U-Hauls I saw going the other way when I was moving out East, you know, but it's kind of like that where, where you're from, like as a cliche thing, I would say like in the West, the first question someone's going to ask you is like, what do you do? That's who you are, right? In the East, it's where you're from. Oh, okay. They connect it to your family and it's a little bit more of a class system, you know, in the Northeast. That's old school. Super. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was strange. It was strange, but then the flip side was I got to go over to Germany and, you know, like in the snowboard world, like, yeah, it's a lot of dues and you got to work hard, just like any job, you got to work hard. But yeah. the highs were really high. The highs were like, oh, we went to the Elan factory and got, got to see all the snowboards get made. And then they schmoozed and took us to some castle and gave us dinner at the castle. And then we went snowboarding and you're just like, this is stuff you can't wait to tell your friends, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not talking about the, like the mundane three weeks you just had in the office. <laughs> but, um, so those were some, those were some real high highs, but it only lasted a year after a year, the, uh, Technica bought it. And this is kind of, that's kind of like the snowboard world and the greater retail world in general. There's this consolidation that's been happening ever since way back then where the company started getting bought and sold a lot. And so the, the, the distributorship, not the original company, but in this case, but the distributorship got sold again and Technica Vocal was one of those ski companies that wanted a piece of the action, right? Yeah. Like they started their vocal snowboards, kind of wasn't moving. It's like, okay, let's buy this. Let's, let's get on the snowboard scene. So, you know, one day we're working and then they, they came in like, you know, like, well, we bought your company and, you, you know, if you want to move to Vermont, you can move to Vermont. Otherwise, you're done with the job and we need to know by tomorrow. So everyone's just running around like, oh, what are you going to do? And, uh, you know, sky's falling, sky's falling. And I yeah. was like, but you, you know my answer. I don't have a lot going on in Connecticut. So I'm like, fuck it. Yeah, let's go see what Vermont's all about. Yeah. And so it was actually New Hampshire on the Vermont, New Hampshire border. Okay. So I move up. I rented a U-Haul and moved the office up, actually. And um, so I land in the Technica Vocal office in uh, West Lebanon, New Hampshire. And uh, it was an interesting experience because at the time, Vocal was one of the more conservative of the ski companies. And so very race-oriented, race graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember my first day going in the office. It was kind of like these, you know, like gray walls. Uh, <laughs> dentist office vibe a little bit yeah no offense no offense pete i and um uh i remember getting the tour and one of the customer service people is like wow you're really nice for a snowboarder <laughs> I being like, oh just hold it in don't give a smart ass answer because i'm i'm really a smart ass but i uh so i you know like all right and then that night um john staller was the was the uh leader of that distribution it was technica vocal 
marker bindings and he was old school 80s prep school man he, he always had a flipped up eyes odd and he had some penny loafers with with uh, no socks and he had some funky reader shades and yeah and so he's easy to make fun of as a snowboard the dude is actually super legendary he's just amazing he was amazing businessman but anyway um that night he's like yeah i got a christmas party you know and uh we were up just there meeting for the day so this was like when i was probably interviewing or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. and uh so it's me and my my boss he's like well we're having a little our annual christmas you know it's 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 a jacket thing which i didn't know meant suit and tie like <laughs> that you know like lingo yeah but he's like but, you know you just you know i know you're probably not prepared so just come anyway so i'm like for me dressing up is like you know i got my button-up shirt on <laughs> like yeah. all right let's do this you know it's like clean shirt i'm ready to go and um <laughs> might even tucked it in if i was really gonna go the extra mile and um so i get to this party and we're mingling around and john lives on john c Stoller drive you know <laughs> and he's got this pimp ass house and it's like okay this is where i learned about like old school money and new england vibes and yeah he was a you know an ivy league grad and uh so i'm at this party and like someone told me the next day that i got to be friends with later they're like one of the product guys one of the managers i don't remember who it was like who's that guy over there and like, oh that's the new uh new snowboard product manager they're bringing up and he's like that's why my kid will never snowboard <laughs> <laughs> and for me like you know it it actually turned out to be no big deal because of course just like all the other places of course that building was full of like real down good skiers you know mm -hmm. people that have been real athletes and they want to stay in the business and they're working so i ended up you know making good friends and growing down and we got back to just making fun of each other which is how it's supposed to be yeah but those were funny intros to living on the east coast because it was a different culture and i ended up spending eight years out there and uh or not eight years with nitro but maybe seven or six out there and uh and you know got to like it and there's always things to offer in every area and yeah. you know new hampshire's a pretty cool place the license plate says live free or die yeah so that's pretty badass cool it's, it's it's pretty fucking cool yeah. right? so i mean in, the, in that way there's a little vibe in new hampshire of like you leave me alone i'll leave you alone you do your thing and and that sounds pretty familiar to the the ethos that was up in alaska too yeah for and sure so you know i really did get to like and know new england um but then at a certain point, yeah, it was time to go west again. And then and, and, and the industry is competitive. So took, even though I was friends with the guys at Dakine, I think four or five years of trying. Because selling snowboards is hard. Like only by this point, most people that had a, wanted a snowboard had a snowboard. Mm -hmm. And it was getting saturated. Closeouts started to become a big thing. Price wars, you know. And so I would see those big racks of Dakine gloves and be like, man, that seems like the way to go, you know. Mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i got finally got the call to go over they were growing and then a guy by the name of chico bukovansky who was the man at dakine um yeah he paved the way for for my next step and my next learning at a certain point you were in a position to sponsor riders do you remember who you sponsored and why you chose them you know, I was never a team manager. What I would be was kind of the interim team manager in between things, you know. And um, I do remember, like, the when I got the job at Nitro, like, the first board they gave me, I put it in the mail and sent it to Chris Currier. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you're sponsored, bro. <laughs> but most of the time, um, you know, like I said, the sponsor stuff was tricky. Yeah. Because, like... I mentioned all those things about sponsorship and like 
you know, when you usually hear a writer talking about the, like, if he says like, oh, the industry, you, you hear the tone of the voice that they're talking about some, you know, some suits that don't give a shit about them and, and uh, whatnot, you know, and it's kind of has that, that tone to it. You know, my experience working inside was, was there's a little of that for sure, but there was mostly people that were really passionate about what they did and they could actually make more money doing other stuff. And mm-hmm. they wanted to be in skiing or snowboarding or, you know, if, probably at like, Patagonia there's probably a bunch of pretty cool people that work there I would guess you know but you know the sponsorship thing was always tough because you know if you decide to sign a contract or you decide to become a sponsored writer then it's going from something you're doing for fun with your friends for your own validation that you're using your skills to help promote a company Mm -hmm. and that becomes a different set of circumstances becomes a different relationship you have with the sport mm-hmm. and I think a lot of young riders struggle with that because you know what at the core of the matter is validation you know you get sponsored it validates you to your parents to yourself to your friends it's a good thing you know and you need that as, as a youthful person mm-hmm. like I what I'm doing makes sense I'm good at it you know mm-hmm. that's the good part about the sponsorship stuff but the bad part would probably be you know, that it has a limited run and, and with so many, with the companies consolidating, with people selling, what happened a lot of times is, you know, you get you get on by somebody and if your homie was the team manager, then he got let go, removed companies, the new guy came on and didn't know you and things like that. So it was, I had a lot of kids, a lot of times, sometimes if you tried to help them, it just made it worse because like, oh, I can flow you a board and if I didn't even have the, really the resources, but I'd find one and get it to them. They're like, well, I want to get on the team. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if you, yeah. Sometimes it'd be better just to do nothing and to kind of get someone's hopes up a little bit, I would say. Yeah. Um, so team stuff for me, I, I was never the best guy at it. I think you have to say no a lot more than you say yes. Um, and like I said, you can't really say what's on your mind sometimes if a kid was getting kind of, kind of lippy or kind of bitter about stuff. Um, because you're dealing with someone's hopes and dreams, their identity. Mm-hmm. And at least I had the wherewithal to try to try to not be too cool in those kind of circumstances. I don't know if that really answers the question, really, but team was tricky. And, you know, I would say, I remember, you know, when I would go to camp, there was always some kid just going nuts, right? I remember like seeing Darian Draper launch awesome stuff and be like, I got to get you some snowboards. You know, like, yeah, like, like, I'm not the team manager, but here's a board. But then, you know, that puts someone like Darian in a position like, where am I sponsored? Am I not sponsored? You know, skateboard would call that on flow. That's where skateboarding mm-hmm. has a little more organization to it. Um, but, you know, things like that would happen all the time. And so if I saw someone I thought was just really over the top, you know, I'd try to hook them up. And it was the same thing on the East Coast. There was East Coast a little bit had the same feeling most of the scene in the media comes out of California mm-hmm. and out of the West. So whereas ski world is a lot of East coast based stuff like ski academies and things. Uh, a lot of the riders kind of felt neglected or like not noticed. And, and so you know, I tried to get some of those guys that were good on and try to bring them up to the borderline camp. People like, like Aaron diamond and just some other, you know, up and comers at the time. Um, so, you know, sponsorship for the most part, I was mostly just taking it over when like some team manager quit or something else and just doing my best. I don't think I really like ever really was the guy to put it together. Other than that original verse Juno team, that's probably the only time I really did it. Yeah. It seems like, you know, like you were just saying about the people that are involved in snow sports, 
snow sports, whether it's um, skiing, whether it's snowboarding, you know, as far as like your experience goes, the people involved are generally like pretty cool because they could be making, you know, so much more money doing something else. And so taking that sentiment and then applying it to say you, for example, you know, you want to do as much good and try to appreciate as many people as possible, uh, considering your job. And so if that means giving Darian Draper, you know, a board because he absolutely deserves it, he deserves the recognition for his talent, then that's, you know, that's what you're going to do because you're the person, you know, witnessing that and you have maybe not all the resources as a team manager, but you have a a few, you know, you have the ability to give him a snowboard. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the company perspective, it was, you know, I mentioned it kind of came from skateboarding, but in snowboarding, you know, there's first the Burton A team back in the eighties and, you know, it was Mm -hmm. Jeff Brushy, Mike Jacoby, Craig Kelly, and they were the team, you know, and I wouldn't say it was till probably the forum four came out forum team with Peter line and all them that, that someone really made another cohesive small team that was just, you know, all ripper riders that mm-hmm. they fit the bill. It's like a crew of dudes that you wanted to be like, that you just studied their video parts. It was like, holy shit. And then from there, I think companies like us at Nitro and other ones, we were just trying to emulate that same thing, you know, get a core group of riders together. But at some point it started to become, you know, what, how many athletes really influence a sale of a product? Mm-hmm. You know, for example, like no matter who's kicking off the boot or up at borderline campus, that can influence a sale at the ski swap in the Midwest, let's say, you know, mm-hmm. or, or at the giant stadium sale I used to work every year, which was always kind of a funny one because <laughs> <laughs> it matched, matched the snowboard to my couch and stuff like that. But, um, you know, so that becomes a question like if you took it out of snowboarding to basketball, like how many pro basketball players are going to influence a shoe sale? You mm-hmm. know, there's probably a a niche few and then everything else kind of becomes a you know in marketing it's what helps influence the sale it's always it's kind of it's not all science you know it's kind of some guesswork and Mm -hmm. and that becomes a question like does the team influence the sales you know it's one aspect so that's where team became kind of tricky because it's hard to argue that you get return on it you know yeah totally you know moving on to you know more present day Last March, you were diagnosed with colon cancer. You had surgery. You went through chemo. How are you doing now? Today, I'm good, you know, and like the cancer stats are crazy. Um, And you can like Google yourself into a quite a (laughs) quite a bad mood if you want to, you know, because most of this most of the data is outdated. It's, um, you know, cancer technology is changing all the time and, and people you know, it applies to all sorts of people with different conditions. But, um, you know, my oncologist told me, you know, 100% chance I'm alive today, mm-hmm. which is true, and pretty pretty good chance of me kicking tomorrow. And so that's kind of where I'm at, you know. And in the cancer thing, um, yeah, it really, it's, oh, by the way, well, PSA, you know, I have colon cancer. So if you are in your 40s, your 50s, the age is 45 now to get your butt checked. Um, it's an easy operation. You go sleep for a little while, wake up, or you can stay awake and watch. Um, it's a very easy procedure. Usually with health insurance, it's covered as a preventative, just like getting a physical. So it's a big killer out there. So go get it done. Yeah, when absolutely. I first got it, 
I had lost a friend, we had lost a friend at DeKine, Scott Gehring, um, when he got a diagnosis, you know, he was seven or eight months later, he was out. And it was a big loss for us in the Hood River community. He was a good guy, you know, father, a couple young kids, healthier guy than me for sure. So when I got the news, I'm like, you know, the first part's the scariest, you know, while they're doing the scans and the tests and figuring out what you got. And then, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm lucky I live in this modern era. They, they took it out and it was determined I'm high risk through some factors. Um, it had broken through my wall of my colon. It was kind of out there transmitting its cancer message to the body. So yeah, it might be coming back, might not. They're monitoring some stuff on me right now. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those things that, yeah, I had a pretty scary spring and then summer I got into the chemo and, um, it was, it wasn't the funnest thing in the world. I know funnest isn't a word, but people don't typically go, yeah, that chemo wasn't that bad. <laughs> you know, you never hear that too often. Yeah. But at the, honestly, you know, like my mom had cancer. She battled lung cancer for a lot of years and, uh, it's actually one of the main reasons I left Juno. And, um, you know, I used to be full of like braggadocious statements, watching her suffer and do her thing and her surgeries. I'm like, fuck that, dude. I am not doing that. There's no way. Mm-hmm. Like if I ever get cancer, that's what I'm going to check out this heroin thing, see what it's all about. Or I'm going to go <laughs> yeah, okay. ride off something. I'm going to skydive without, sh-. you know, some macho shit, right? Yeah. The reality is you like your life. You like living. Yeah. The answer was more like, all right, so what time do you be there on Wednesday? And what do I need to bring? You know? Yeah. And, and then you do the job. So... I, um, you know, things oftentimes in life just kind of work out neatly. And, um, I'd gotten laid off from Smith and I was kind of didn't know what to do with myself a little bit. And then this came along and, uh, and I was like, all right, this is my job. So that was my job this summer. And, uh, yeah, you know, it, I've been skating, snowboarding, all that stuff actually really helped me prep for it. Cause we all know how to take some blows. We all know how mm-hmm. to have some patience, get the vision on the other end of the thing. I thought, man, I can't do these sports, you know, so I can't mountain bike this summer. I won't ride this year. I won't surf all summer. But the truth was, you know, I was watching the contests on YouTube. I was catching up on the latest things. I was watching Lando and washed up, rip it up. And, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the sports were there for me the whole time, along with, you know, my version of the Juno boys, the dudes I met down in Durango when I was, when I was a young guy, mm-hmm. um, they all had my back hundred percent. So, you know, the kind crew, my old friends. And so, you know, that was actually, I wouldn't say it was a good experience, but it was my experience. You know, it's not your first choice, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world. I got through it. Okay. And, and so can anyone else mm-hmm. so far that is. And when it hits, you know, I'll have my time. Mm-hmm. Do you think because of that diagnosis, your mindset or your goals have changed or shifted at all? I would say so. Um, But it's kind of funny, you know, you get into this cancer mode and and life becomes a lot of cliches, right? You know, people tell you cliche kind of stuff. Everything happens for a reason, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but some of those cliches become pretty true. You start to think about life you start to think about your death. Um, you know, I went and got my affairs in order, got my will done, you know, and want to make sure my wife's okay and that kind of thing. And my family's really worried. Some of that stuff is really kind of reassuring a lot of other people because mm-hmm. people are kind of used to you being you and you being vital and and then suddenly you're weak and you're not. Mm-hmm. And communicating was hard on chemo because it kind of like, it's kind of like having a massive hangover, like just everything the the light sensitivity is really one of them you kind of got a headache and you just you don't feel like being out there right you kind of got to crawl into a hole a little bit 
Yeah. And so that stuff was, yeah, it was scary at times, but, um, but yeah, it also kind of reinforces what's important to you. Like I realized I don't really have a bucket list. Like, yeah, it'd be cool to go to Morocco. I'd like to go surfing there. Mm-hmm. But I can't be like, oh man! After all the cool stuff I've gotten to do, and these good trips, and these good friends, yeah. you know, I've had a good, good run. And um, there's plenty of people. We've all lost friends along the way. And so, my view is, as long as I'm alive, I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. I I got things to do. I got life to live. Mm-hmm. But what it did do was make me appreciate the here and the now. Like I'm not as travelly as I used to be. Like I want to be home. I want to enjoy enjoy what I got, enjoy what I've worked for, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say it's grounded me a little bit. It's made me appreciate like my family and my, my hardcore people that are just there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if that quite answers it, but yeah, it's been heavy and it will probably will be heavy in the future. Um, but, you know, it affects one in six people. And, um, you know, I had good friends like uh, my buddy Johan from, from C3 that runs Coal Capita and uh, union bindings you know he'd been through some gnarly stuff so he's one of the first guys i called mm-hmm. and he's he's an ultimate shit talker so he's giving me all kinds of good like you're gonna look great at 130 pounds bro <laughs> 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 you know like yeah. ca- kind of what i needed because that's kind of how how we roll in, the, in our snow world you know and just talking a lot of shit all the time did he give you any advice that you remember yeah yeah, he said, you can't spend it when you're dead, so put everything into this. He told me to be my own advocate. Don't wait for an answer from somebody else. Figure it out yourself. Do the research. Because, you know, you get conflicting opinions with doctors and treatments. Mm-hmm. You also get a lot of unsolicited advice when you have cancer. Um, those are the things that really stick out with me. And not to be a pussy, I think he told me. <laughs> 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 Something along those lines, probably. Um yeah, so, you know, I had a lot of help from a lot of different places when, uh, when the health stuff came up, for sure. And now it's funny because people call me when they're having health worries, like I'm, like I'm some kind of guy now. I'm like, you know, I was, yeah, I was late for my physical for this. But, yeah, I mean, I got checked at 52, and if I would have got checked at 50 or 48, I might have avoided this whole hassle. So, yeah, mm. definitely that's why my little shout-out to – I got, like, 20 dudes now that have went and got their, their bum checks since, since my shit hit because, you know, I got some slacker friends, and this one guy. And so, I like, two of them have had polyps scraped off. And, you know, that's what eventually grows into the cancer. So, um, yeah, so it's worth talking about. And, um, and uh, yeah, cancer affects pretty much all of us in one way or another in our lifetime. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. You have this group of other men who are contacting you, you know, looking for advice. It's, you know, you taking on that mentor role again. Yeah, it just happened yesterday with a buddy who was I'm going on a trip with him and he's, he's having some heart problems. And he has to go get it probed and checked and yeah yeah you know, like, i don't know shit about heart problems bro but i can yeah. tell you how to be i can tell you how to tough up and not take it out on your wife <laughs> yeah totally yeah that's good advice though you know yeah well thanks and um yeah it's like like i said it's nothing that you want to have happen to you but i always thought it'd be the worst thing in the world to get cancer um because you don't want to no one likes to see their their mom suffer or anyone else they love yeah but you know, I, I would go on this uh, support forum on Reddit for cancer because there's some things you, it's nice to bitch about with strangers. Mm-hmm. And um, I would try to take, give it a spin, you know. And I realized, like, man, this is a lot better than if I got in a head-on collision on that gnarly drive back and forth to the beach in Oregon, mm-hmm. you know. 
um, a couple of weeks ago, a random one, like a tree blew down and took these dudes out. Boom, they're done. Oh, man. And like, that to me is much worse because I wouldn't get to be talking to you right now. I wouldn't get to tell everyone I love them and I wouldn't get to yeah. have people make me laugh and shit, you know? So, so to me, um, better, worse, I, I don't know if those are the best words to use with things like this. It's more just deal with your situation and be appreciative of what you have. And that's what cancer's taught me is maybe to think about the times I wasn't being appreciative of everything I had. Maybe I was wasting time, you know? And now you watch it. When you watch people recover from cancer, they kind of get this second wind of like, I'm going to go do some living. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and they got a good tune most of the time and they're, and they're out, you know, trying to do stuff. And I think yeah. that's, um, I think that could be any kind of near, near death experience is going to, is going to get you there, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, almost dying snowboarding a couple of times, that probably helped too. Cause you kind of face those things. Yeah. You kind of, you think about them. So, they, so it's not the first time you thought about it, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I don't have, um, any experience with cancer, but you know, that car accident that my dad and I were in, oh, yeah. um, back when I was 13, you know, that has left this really big impression on me of just, you know, appreciating the now, you know, appreciating the present. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt like, you know, every day that I've had after that is extra. You know, every day that I've had after that is, is something more that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And I need to appreciate it. And sometimes I, you know, I spiral and I, uh, and maybe it's more often than not, I spiral and, and, you know, I'm selfish again. And, um, you know, maybe I had too much coffee one day or, you know, maybe I drank too much alcohol one night, which doesn't, take much alcohol these days, you know, four (laughs) drinks and I feel like crap the next day. But, you know, it's just like you get in your own head and you forget like how privileged you really are. And then, um, you know, I guess this is kind of an interesting thing to, to bring up, but I don't know if you're familiar with, um, this YouTube channel called soft white underbelly. And it's these really just candid interviews with, um, you know, like pimps and prostitutes and uh, drug addicts and people that are on Skid Row. And my friend Mike, you know, he he shared them with me, I think like two weeks ago, and they grounded me again. You know, I have these moments throughout my life where, you know, just like anybody, I become selfish and I become, you know, just fully in my own head and in my own insular world. And then I, I need to be brought back to reality and that recently, those those videos, you know, hearing these really just hard scrabble lives from from these people who are are good people, but they're just in a shitty situation. And it really just, at least for me, you know, that's what it did for me is like, okay, like I'm I'm doing okay. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I agree with you. And like, you know, it's I think it's maybe a human nature to kind of default to taking things somewhat for granted. And that you have, it's always work to really be awake and have your eyes open to the reality of everything you have going for you, everything gifted for you. And totally, you know, it's like your, your mom saying, finish your plate because there's kids starving in China, like that old thing when you're a kid. And, you know, yeah, but does that make you feel that way? You know, and I think for your car wreck, it also just shows how things can change in an instant. Yeah. It can change in a day. Like I went in for that 
for that operation, that scope with them telling me how healthy I was. And my, are you an athlete? Your heart beats really good. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm kind of feeling cool about myself at 52, you know, and, and then it all changed that day. Mm-hmm. You know, my concern when I went in was, could I drink that night? Because I was going to a going away party for a kind dude. And, you know, then my reality completely shifted. And do you like, do you like it as a journalist if they say, my reality shifted 360? Because you're like, no, it's 180. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally, yeah. 360, you're going the same way, bro. Yeah, you just stomped um, it right in the same direction. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it can change just like that. And when I was getting ready for this, podcast I was you know it's kind of fun because I was writing out kind of you know what I thought might be interesting for people listening who are who live in Alaska or snowboard backgrounds and and I realized how many times like little decisions you make in life can completely change you know like a butterfly effect type thing mm-hmm. is can completely change your direction the person you might and it might sometimes there's big things where you're like wow this is a life changer there's other times where it's just your buddy inviting you to go over and meet this guy or mm-hmm. oh let's go over and check this thing out or hey, you want to try this go skiing with me or whatever it is yeah and i had all these moments i realized where man if if chair five would have been hiring cooks i would have never worked at borderline yeah <laughs> <You know>? yeah <laughs> and then everything would have been different or if i wouldn't have done this or i wouldn't have done that and i think the takeaway from that is you know if you're in the right mindset and you work to be in the right mindset on a daily basis you're more open to what might come your way, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're kind of in this, like you said, a spiral, your head's down, you're grumpy or whatever, you're not, then you might have some things pass you by that, that the universe is throwing at you. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking to to end this conversation, Tim, I know you have told a lot of stories, you know, so far, but I wonder if you have maybe one about your time in Alaska, you know, you've spent so much time snowboarding up there. Uh, in a lot of ways it helped you, you know, form the person that you would become. I wonder if when you think about all those runs and all that time you spent in the mountains, if any particular time or moment comes to mind, you know, the mountains, like I told you was, you know, to come up there to kind of prove myself in that, in, at a higher level of riding with these, you know, big ass Alaskan peaks and all that. Mm-hmm. It was mostly humbling. It was really fun. Um, and I had a lot of good times riding, but you know, most of the riding kind of blurred away over the years, to be honest with you. There's a couple of standout days, you know, like I was saying with the Hellies and some of the kickers and riding with the kids. Mm-hmm. It was really the experiences, um, honestly, with your family. You know, when, when I came up, you know, I remember seeing your brother D's. He was just all all teeth and grin and blonde hair, ripping the mini ramp, yeah. doing these old school tricks. You know, Jake was. You know, you could tell me how old everyone was in ninety three, ninety four. I remember you coming with Sharon. You'll pick up the cash at the end of the night, and uh, you know, of course, your bro and, and everything. And it was amazing to come back and watch Jake become adult Jake. Okay, just, just yeah. really organized on it, dude. You know, and like. So those things were really, it was everything around snowboarding and around the scene that really made an impression on me. And I think for my business career, you know, if I'm honest, that's where I did best in in winter sport was as a career. You know, it took a while, but I made a good career out of it and I met tons of great people. And I remember being at the Diamond Center at the end of the night, your dad came in 
which was kind of normal routine. See what we sold that day, mm-hmm. pick up the cash, right? And uh, I told him I was leaving, going back home. And he was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, going to go back to school. And he's like, what, what are you studying in school? And I was like, oh, I'm studying business management. And he gave me that, you know, when he kind of stops and gives you that kind of cockeyed look. Yeah. While he's thinking <laughs> of what to say. <laughs> and then he's like, gives that little, that look your dad gives, where he kind of looks at you for a second, kind of funny. Yeah. And then he goes, here's all you need to know about business. And he just reaches in the cash register, scoops out all the cash, folds it in half and stuffs it in his pocket and looks at me. <laughs> and man, I can't tell you, you know, his mantra back then was, we don't fuck around. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. We don't fuck around. And uh, man, I went back, to, you know, all through my career, those words were in the back of my brain somewhere, you know. Here's what you need to know about business. Put the cash in your pocket, you know. Yeah. And of course, that's top line sales and not bottom line sales. And I could nerd up and dissect it, but it was just one of those list of moments that that stuck with me, where he was just a hundred percent him, you know. And that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to be. I wanted to be a hundred percent me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be eighty percent me and twenty percent trying to be something else. And so I think that if you ask about my impression of Alaska, it was about the people. And I, we're nearing the end, so I don't want to go on. But, you know, there's another really good example. I, I couldn't let this interview go by without uh, mentioning Borgstedt. You know, Jason mm-hmm. was the youngest guy at the Borderline crew working at the Diamond Center. I think he was the most mature one because I think he understood ahead of us what his role was. I think mm-hmm. he understood that the kids were looking up to us and that he was a mentor. And so while the rest, some of us are getting smoky in the middle of the day, which is, when I think about it, a total disrespect to Scott, mm. you know, um, he was focused. He wasn't partying. He, wasn't, he never has been a partier. Yeah. But he, but, and then look what he did, you know? He won the most prestigious pro competition with the, what was it, Cab 9 mm-hmm. back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> now he runs his own shops. He had, you know, I really respect what... What him and Jesse did, they they made their own scene, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that was what I took back down south with me. I took that spirit of Alaska, you know. All these all these dudes I mentioned, I owe them all. I always will, you know. And that's why if I got them a pair of gloves or something now and then, it was, you know, it was nothing. I was re- that, years down the road. I, you know, Jason, I got to sell him to Kine when he showed up to the trade show. Mm-hmm. Got to do the same with Jake when he was opening Legacy. And that was, that was deeply satisfying, you know, to get to come full circle and like see these guys and, and have us all be adults. And like, like you said, like, you know, we're just talking story as they say in Hawaii (laughs) and, uh, you know, old snowboarders love to talk about the old days. So it's been real fun, but you know, it wasn't even the riding up there. There was some good riding, but you know, there's good riding all over. Um, Mm -hmm. what it was, it was the people up there that, that really, made the time special well tim that does it for my questions you know i want to thank you for everything you've done for borderline for alaska for snowboarding and you know i'm really glad you're doing good today and i'm going to keep you in my thoughts thanks buddy i appreciate it do you have anything else you'd like to add um big shout out to your mom yeah sharon's a bomb um I don't think I have a thing to add, really. I, you know, it's been really fun to talk about Alaska and about my time up there and about 
stuff. And, you know, I would just say, you know, it's if I was going to do anything kind of preachy, it would just be listen to your gut. Every time there's this voice inside of all of us that, and maybe it's not inside of us, it's inside of me, that you know when you're doing the wrong thing. And then later on, you know how you're like, oh, I knew I should have. Mm-hmm. Like, I think um, I got lucky in life a lot of times by listening to my gut. It wasn't always what people were telling me to do. I think if you listen to that voice inside and you know what's, you know what's right and wrong. And um, that's how the good opportunities come your way. It's just really trying to be your true self. I think that would be, you know, if I had words to pass on about what worked for me in this life so far, it's the times I was real. The times I was trying to be cool, I'm not that cool, dude. I'm a pretty nerdy guy. The times I was trying too hard, those are the times I made bad decisions. You know, be yourself, be true to yourself, like you're doing with your thing, you know? I was thinking how, like, so many people had pressure to play baseball or football back in the day and not skateboard, and you probably had the reverse peer pressure to be a shredder, you know? (laughs) And, And you had to find your own way. And, you know, that's your gut telling you what your passions are and you found a passion and then things really work. So I, I think that, that's what I would like to leave anyone who's listening with is, you know, trust yourself, be your best self and, and things work out. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 